thank you so much for co-hosting today. Uh, welcome everybody to our Shaping Vaping Twitter space for May 25th. Today we are going to talk about um, what works when you're facing a flavor ban. And, you know, particularly we're going to use Colorado as an example of that, because there was an intense fight this year uh, that we were ultimately victorious in. And I'm very excited about the lineup of guests that we have today to talk about this. Of course, um, Shar and I will be hosting the space. Uh, we've got the wonderful Lindsay Stroud as a guest. Lindsay is with the Taxpayer Protection Alliance. She's also a board member of American Vapor Manufacturers Association, and she followed along um, not only with the Colorado flavor ban, but with all the flavor bans that were running in various states this year. And she was very active in testifying in Colorado against the flavor ban. Uh, we've also got Art Way joining us today. Um, <clears throat> Art Way is a wonderful, wonderful ally uh, in Colorado fighting various types of, of prohibition at the city and state levels there in Colorado. Um, Artway, uh, I wonder if I could, I could give everyone an overview of your background in harm reduction and drug policy, but I think uh, you could probably uh, set the table best if you wanna just give a little bit of background about how uh, you got involved in this space and, and how your prior experience led you to that because you've been an amazing person to have on the ground and an incredible voice in this debate. Yeah, thank you so much, Amanda. Um, you know, I've been involved in social justice for like 15 years um, from about 07 to, um, well, about 12 years to 2019. Um, I was involved in police accountability work, uh, and then I got involved in drug policy uh, as a drug policy reformer. Um, so prohibition as a drug policy reformer is is not something we agree with. Um, and, you know, I kind of got involved in the tobacco space um, a few months actually before the death of Eric Garner in New York. Um, so that really kind of put the tobacco issue uh, on the map for drug policy reformers. And uh, since 2019, I've started my own drug policy consultation firm. And so I've stayed involved in this space uh, since then. Well, we're very happy to have you, Art. Like I said, you've just been an invaluable part of the fight in, in Colorado and provide such an important perspective and, and voice on this, particularly with uh, criminal justice reform, drug policy, all of those things you mentioned. Uh, we also have joining us today, Joe McClosey, who is very near and dear to me. So Joe has represented the Rocky Mountain Smoke-Free Alliance in Colorado for a number of years. Uh, he's a former state representative in Colorado. Uh, from the Democrat side of the aisle, so he understands that perspective in Colorado very well. Uh, Joe also represents American Vapor Manufacturers Association and has done so since our inception, and he's really done an admirable job uh, advocating uh, for our small businesses in Colorado and, and also working on federal policy with FDA issues. Uh, so Joe, welcome to the Twitter space. I'm very happy to have you on. Uh, do you wanna say a couple of words by way of introduction? Yeah, thanks so much, Amanda. Just a pleasure to be here with Art Way, other colleagues like uh, Ted Trimpa and um, the whole team that worked to um, defeat some of the vaping um, flavor uh, legislation um, that would have prohibited um, our, our businesses from existing and look forward to the dialogue today. 
Great. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we also have Tim Andrews from Americans for Tax Reform joining us, who uh, looks like has still not been promoted to speaker. So uh, when Tim uh, gets connected here, we'll uh, have him say a few words. But Tim uh, did a wonderful job uh, speaking up and testifying in a couple of committees up in Colorado and really tracked the issue very closely, uh, very active in a number of states this year in that capacity, and, and has some good perspective on how this fits into the national uh, prohibition movement against our products. So uh, thanks, Tim, for joining us, and, and we hope you get uh, your speaking abilities here soon. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get into it. And I think a good way to start would be to set up a little background, uh, just kind of about Colorado and how we arrived at the point of this state-level uh, flavor ban, because this goes back a long way to 2019 to the local control bill, where we saw all of these things break out on the municipal level and eventually rise to the state level in 2020. It didn't go anywhere. And so I wonder, Joe, if you might uh, just take a moment and sort of set uh, the background for how we got to this 2022 flavor fight in Colorado. Yeah, just real briefly, glad to join McClosey here. Basically, there's some very um, uh, interested stakeholders in the healthcare community led by Jody Radke from Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, which, as we all know, is Michael Bloomberg funded, that really want to destroy the vaping sector. And they don't make distinctions between you know, large tobacco companies and obviously small, what I call responsible vaping stores. And Jody and about 20 lobbyists and healthcare organizations worked with Representative Kyle Mullica, uh, a nurse, as well as a Democratic state representative from a suburb um, just north of Adams um, County or north of Denver in Adams County, and um, a few other legislators to sponsor this legislation. At the very beginning of the session in January here in Colorado, they were very confident they could pass the bill, and it took us about four months to um, kind of uh, broaden our coalition to defeat it. But that's kind of a quick summary. Thank you for that, Joe. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, that's excellent background. And I think the point of the Twitter space today is really to dissect Colorado as a case study in case there's any, um, you know, pearls of wisdom or strategies that can be taken from that, you know, how we can not only um, defeat this again in Colorado, because we will face this battle again there, but around the country, any kind of strategies that were successful where anybody can take a lesson and maybe implement some of those things into what they're doing. Uh, so it looks like Tim has joined us now. Glad to have you, Tim. Uh, Tim, did you want to say a few words of introduction? Um, no, look, thank you very much for having me. Sorry about the issues with connecting earlier. Um, I would, so, but I'm glad to be here with you representing Americans for Tax Reform and with such great people who have done such an amazing job in fighting for the right to people to save their lives in Colorado against vested interests that wanted to deny people literally the opportunity to save their lives. Well said, Tim, and, and we appreciate you in the fight. Uh, so my first question is for Art. Um, so the city of Denver and the state of Colorado rejected the flavor ban. Um, this flavor ban now is at the point where it seems like it's almost an annual event. And I, I want to ask you from your harm reduction perspective, why are these prohibition groups so persistent in Colorado? And, and why do you think they're failing to win over lawmakers? You know, I, I really don't understand what it is about many in the public health community um, that that truly think prohibition is a, a, a public health approach. 
especially when you're talking about prohibition of substances that are, you know, popular, you know, vaping has been around, I think since around 2007, 2008, when it comes to nicotine. Uh, and, and it's, it, it amazes me how the public health community thinks you can just kind of put the genie back in the bottle and, and, and somehow get rid of these products after they have become, you know, commonplace for many people who one are trying to, uh, either substantially alter or quit altogether their tobacco use. Um, so, you know, I, I've been bugged by the public health community when it comes to them thinking prohibition is a public health approach. Um, I, I do think the money of Michael Bloomberg has probably helped keep them around um, year after year when it comes to this specific fight. Um, but, you know, Colorado has a pretty strong libertarian independent streak. You know, we're, of course, we're one of the first states or the, the first state to legalize marijuana. Um, so we, we do have people who take a sensible approach to drug policy, uh, try to bring it above ground and, and try to regulate it uh, as tightly as possible. So, you know, I, I think they kind of ran into that buzzsaw in Colorado. Uh, but, yeah, the public health community and their love affair with prohibition, I, I really can't speak to it. I just know it's something I've been fighting for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else have anything to add to that on, you know, why you think that Colorado is being particularly targeted and, and why, despite, you know, many, many attempts, it, it continues to fail there? Anybody else have any thoughts on that? I mean, Amanda, uh, Joe McClosa here. The, the main thing I would say is I really do think Jody Radke from Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids is kind of the, the high priestess on this issue. And she lives in Colorado. And and is a passionate believer in prohibition. And I think she motivates other healthcare groups and representatives like Kyle Mullica to try to um, end our industry. And I think without her you know, and her leadership on this cause, I, I don't think Colorado would be um, a battleground state in, in this regard. She is absolutely uh, fiercely passionate about her job. And, you know, that's a, a good segue to my next question, uh, which is for Lindsay. But anybody can feel free to chime in here. Uh, but I'm going to direct this question at Lindsay because she's so on top of, of data and numbers and, and really tracking um, the dynamics and data behind the scenes that fuel some of these fights. And so we saw, Lindsay, the Denver Post, um, Colorado Public Radio, and other local media outlets reporting that hundreds of lobbyists had been hired on this flavor ban bill, um, the amount of money that was spent on this by the groups that were involved. Um, you know, but in the end, uh, that ultimately is not what prevailed. Uh, Lindsay, you followed this, um, these hearings and this every step of the way. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, despite that overwhelming firepower that they had, I think there were between 220 and 240 lobbyists on this. And, you know, the vast majority of them were the, the proponents, the people that were pushing this flavor ban. Um, we, we were definitely the minority here in our firing power. I think tobacco-free kids, just that one entity had 25 lobbyists alone working for them, you know, not to mention their 100-org coalition they built all had lobbyists on the issue. Uh, local governments had lobbyists on the issue, all these various other healthcare groups, um, the education groups, the school groups. And so, you know, Lindsay, what do you think really resonated as you were following these hearings, despite that the overwhelming firepower that was arranged against us? 
That's a great question, Amanda. Thank you. Um, one, I think that it was really powerful with the work that you did, um, getting all the vape shops there, that this argument didn't just be this whole, oh, it's big tobacco, hooking your kids. Um, and I think that helped to influence policymakers or the lawmakers in a sense that, you know, these were they could see these people, they could see how they helped them quit smoking, they could see that it was a small business owner. And I think that did, um, especially like post COVID, um, resonate really largely with the lawmakers, I think CTFK ruined themselves when they refused to compromise. Um, it was full out prohibition versus, you know, the people who were against the ban were more willing to work with it, even if it meant, you know, age restricted stores versus CTFK didn't want that at all. Um, and also, I think that the lawyers, too, with the amount of money that we're spending it, I think they were wary on both of the sides of the aisle, whether it was big tobacco throwing the money in or CTFK. I think if you do the numbers correctly, too, I think CTFK actually spent more than like one of the tobacco companies did. Um, um, so I think it was just a whammy on stuff. Um, and then also, you know, Colorado was the, one of the first states to legalize recreational marijuana back in 2012. And that's a big argument you see in other states, too. How are we moving towards legalizing, you know, recreational marijuana while we're banning nicotine? Um, and I think that was over well, especially in a place like Colorado. Yeah, great. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I, there's been several mentions here of Colorado being the first state to legalize marijuana and being progressive on those issues. And I, I think that's a place where um, people like Art and people like Ethan Nadelman, who, who testified at a couple of different hearings, were really crucial because, um, you know, that drug policy fight in Colorado, um, that's a very prominent conversation that's gone on in the state for many years. And, you know, we've got veterans of that fight that are known entities down at the Capitol uh, that are speaking up saying, you know, this is the same thing all over again. You're just recreating these issues, you know, applied to another product. And so I think having that continuity and being able to draw that comparison uh, and tie it to other issues that lawmakers care about in the state, I think was an important aspect as well. Um, Lindsay, you also mentioned uh, the small business coalition that we put together. And, you know, Joe, I want to ask you about this, because one of the things that I really appreciate about you is, is how fiercely you represent us, because you truly do have a heart and a passion for the small businesses, because you've developed such a relationship with us over the years. And I feel like um, you know, you came to this issue with not a lot of knowledge about it, but but you made such an effort to get to know our industry, to get to know our small businesses and, and what we do. And, and I think in a way it, it became something that that you personally care about because um, of the, the relationships that you've, you've built with all of us small business owners and the time you've spent in our stores getting to understand what we're doing and what we're about. Um, and I do think that, that that representation had an impact on the on the fight. You know, in Colorado, we know that we provide 2,370 jobs, 126 million dollars a year in wages, and you know, over 366 million dollars in total economic impact to the states. You know, not to mention you know, the, not only the economic aspect of the shops, but the fact that that these stores in Colorado are truly helping adults quit smokers help smokers quit, I mean. Um, do you think that that message of, of what is actually going on in the small businesses is starting to penetrate uh, lawmakers' decision-making process around these issues? Absolutely. You know, every good campaign, whether it's a legislative campaign or a political electoral campaign, needs a boogeyman. And um, at every juncture, I tried to demonize big, bad tobacco. And that may offend some people on the call, but what happened was 
when you're talking, to, especially to our Democratic state representative and state Senate friends in Colorado, to be able to draw the distinctions between what I called small responsible vape stores and big bad tobacco, it, it really created a distinction in their minds to say, oh, you're not all lumped up in one big organization or trade association the way Jody Radke and Campaign for Tobacco for Kids and the healthcare organizations tried to group us. And th that distinction was huge. And then especially you'd have the store owners, the employees of the stores and the customers come in and say, I use flavors to stay alive. I use flavors to stop smoking cigarettes after 20 years. And we had so many hundreds of those testimonials that only enhanced that um, distinction. Yeah, and Joe, I also wanted to ask, do you think um, that we made such a strong showing with um, female small business owners, uh, small business owners that were from communities of color, um, immigrant small business owners? Do you think that resonated as well? The wide yeah, that's a great point, of, Amanda. Of business owners. Yeah, that, that's a really great point, Amanda. It sure did. I mean, I, I think about some of the best one-on-one -on -one conversations in the hallway where you're having with, you know, a representative or a senator and there's no media around so they can speak freely and you're sitting there with a small business owner who has said, Hey, I've been owning this business for 10 years. I employ 20 people. I've helped thousands of adult consumers stay alive. It, it, it's compelling. And they, they talk about how they put their life savings into it and how they believe in it. And most importantly, how they're a customer themselves, how they used to smoke. And this is a personal passion project and that type of um, authenticity resonated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do. I do think the the one very powerful thing that that we bring to the table is authenticity and passion. And I think that um, everybody involved did a great job of communicating that all throughout the process. Uh, Tim, I wanted to ask you, you know, to kind of broaden this out beyond, you know, being a Colorado specific conversation. Um, this year, we, we saw this action across the country. We saw Hawaii, Connecticut, Maine. Uh, Washington State all take up some version of a flavor ban. Um, and, you know, what points of research do you think apply across all of these states uh, that lawmakers should be looking at and considering before they're voting on these types of bills? Well, so there are two issues. There are two ways I'll respond to that. And the first is, though, to continue on the point that was just made about that authenticity, because with a lot of lawmakers, unfortunately, evidence rational arguments just don't matter. I mean, this is the way that people generally respond to arguments, right? A lot of people just won't necessarily be convinced by data and by science, but they will be convinced by an emotional argument and an appeal to, that actually gets to their heart. So when they see a business owner who has dedicated their life to saving other people's lives, passionately explain this to them. When they see someone who's quit smoking and changed their life for the better as a result, that's a way that you can actually change their opinion. I mean, you looked at them, um, just to use one example, because you brought up Rhode Island, like last year in Rhode Island, there was a lawmaker who was the co-sponsor, one of the co-sponsors of the flavor bands. Um, and then she was invited to come to a vape shop. So she went to a vape shop and actually started speaking to vapors and vape store but the owners there and realized everything she thought was wrong and completely changed her mind and started actually spearheading the challenges to overcome the, the vote. So I just really want to say that what was said earlier about that importance of that sort of personal testimony. And I think that the people in Colorado just did such a great job 
at that. But there is that role for research and evidence as well. Like, I'm not saying obviously discount that. Like, we saw, I think, how great it was to have so many experts in Colorado, like Abigail Friedman, these sort of completely unimpeachable academics who, despite the attempts of debunked, failed hacks like Stanton Glantz, you couldn't impe- to try and smear them. Um, you couldn't impeach any of their academic work, whereas the arguments that the proponents were putting were very easily debunked because they were based on fake junk science and in some cases just blatant lies. So being able to be armed with the ability to just debunk all the myths, all the misinformation and having access to some reputable clients and um, scientists really worked in Colorado and in other states as well. So I think there's sort of this two-hand approach to convincing people. On one hand, it's the science, the evidence and the data. On the other hand, it's that sort of personal testimony from consumers and business owners. And between the two of them, sort of working in conjunction, I think Colorado was a great example of how that worked successfully. It worked in some other states as well. But the fact that we were able to win in Colorado, despite the incredible amounts of money spent against it despite and i mean some of the money spent on lobbying doesn't even count all of the social media ads all of the tv ads that these groups have been running so the fact that it really is a david and goliath battle at some of these states and we're not the goliaths in these battles um, and it worked really really well so it's a combination of those things and there is also some political element to it as well so being able to show people that you know even if you don't care about this saving people's lives, this will hurt the state revenue. This will take money that you've earmarked for a project that you believe is important and take that away. What are you going to do about that revenue? So do you want to raise taxes on other people? Do you want to um, you know, cut other services? What are you going to do about the costs of the black market that this will have? How are you going to pay for these sorts of things? So there's that pragmatic argument as well. So a combination, I think, of all of these arguments is what ultimately was successful and is what, you know, we keep trying to be re- to replicate in other states. Uh, Tim, you brought up so many excellent points. I want to come back to the tax revenue aspect because that part of it can't be understated. And, you know, certainly having you and, and Lindsay with, uh, you know, very tax-focused organizations, I want to come back to that point shortly. Uh, but the first point that you brought up, I think, was something that, Uh, I was very particularly proud of in our defense this year. Um, And and that was something that we did that was relatively new for us in Colorado, which was to bring in all of these experts, all of these PhDs, all of these people that really specialize in in harm reduction research and and know these products in and out and know the potential of these products. Uh, Because we've seen a campaign for tobacco-free kids in the past bring armies of experts, uh, armies of PhDs, armies of physicians. You know, you think of an expert and, you know, they've brought it, mental health experts, even uh, dental experts. I mean, they've left no stone unturned in their uh, quest for expert witnesses to say terrible things about vaping. And, um, you know, I think that was something new that we brought to the table with wonderful people like Abigail Friedman, David Sweener, uh, Ethan Nadelman, Charles Gardner, Michael Cummings, uh, that, that we had testify several times this year. And, and this question is, is really for, for anybody here that was following the hearings. Um, how, you know, listening to that expert testimony throughout this process, uh, what really stood out to you about that as being particularly helpful or impactful um, so that we might replicate the things that, that we feel worked um, for anybody? Yeah, man, just a quick comment, uh, Joe, close to here. I thought 
Dr. Abigail Friedman's research in San Francisco was particularly persuasive and poignant, where she talked about youth cigarette smoking increasing approximately 30% after San Francisco City Council banned flavored vaping products. I use the analogy of squeezing uh, water on one end of the balloon to just goes to the other end. And then the other key factor, which is a little bit ancillary, is which we haven't discussed, is you know Governor Jared Polis, kind of moderate Democrat governor of Colorado, really made it known he didn't like this bill, House Bill 1064, the statewide flavor vaping ban, because it would gut about $38 million um, in tax revenue for one of his top three projects, um, pre-K child care, which he's running his re-election campaign on this November. It polls very well. And that was the behind-the-scenes kind of capital insider point that I think it's important to note. I'm not sure he's a huge fan of vaping, but he, he wanted to quote the 62% sin tax revenue from uh, what the voters voted on in 2020 and didn't want to see that gutted. Well, I guess, uh, Amanda, if, if, if I might interject here, um, one of the things that we find in Texas is when we go into these flavor flavor hearings, which we have had one last year and, and several, um, is we don't really have expert witnesses here. So one thing we might talk about is how do we get those guys in how much as a state org do we save up to uh, to be able to do that, to be able to fight some of these guys? Uh, so, you know, the, the, the good news about that is, you know, uh, I don't think you have to save up for it. I mean, that the, you know, if you have to fly people in, that's a different story. But with Colorado, um, they're still on a hybrid model of, of having virtual testimony. So there wasn't a lot of expense uh, involved in, in, you know, having people get access to be able to participate in, in the process. And so it was really more of a matter of, of reaching out to these experts, letting them know, you know, what was going on and, and asking them for help. And I guess I'll turn that question over to Joe because he was really um, running point on, on arranging a lot of that and, and getting a lot of those people to weigh in. So Joe, do you want to speak to that on how other state groups uh, other advocacy organizations might involve some of these experts in what they're doing, how to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just practically speaking, there were about five to seven speakers. I think Tim mentioned a couple earlier, as did Amanda, that um, were either researchers, professors, industry leaders, and through various contacts through Amanda and other stakeholders, we were able to ask them all to testify virtually or by Zoom, and that worked out extremely well. They'd get their three minutes of testimony, and undoubtedly uh, a representative or a senator would ask them a follow-up question so they could speak longer, but they don't charge anything. And um, some say, hey, they can't testify virtually and support or oppose about a legislation, a piece of legislation, but they can discuss the research, which um, is compelling. And I'm glad to provide those emails to you. Yeah, and so and then that's a, an important point, you know, with some of these experts, they're not going to take a position on the bill, but but they are happy to provide their perspective on the research that they've worked on and, and research that they're uh, very knowledgeable on. And, and so that was extremely helpful. And so I would say that the key to that is to be persistent to, you know, tap your networks, our advocacy networks to ask a lot of people because, you know, you, you ask a lot to get a few. And so it's just a, a matter of really being very vocal in those requests and tracking these people down and, and you know, just, just making the ask. And, you know, it's, it's one silver lining of the pandemic was this option for virtual testimony that I do think was was quite helpful. I even 
had to utilize uh, virtual testimony this year because of um, you know some some family situations that that we had going on with uh, my mother-in-law's passing and so I was very grateful that we were still on that hybrid model from the pandemic. Uh, so Art, I wanted to, um, well, let's see, while we're on this topic, I think we'll go to Art on this and then we'll come back to this tax discussion because I think the tax discussion is really important. But but to kind of close the loop on, on our harm reduction discussion, Art, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously with the political climate being what it is, it's very tough for a lawmaker to vote against something that's supported by a group called tobacco-free kids. Um, we've heard that countless times in our private conversations with lawmakers. It's like, you know, the public perception is that if you vote against prohibition, you're voting against children. And so, you know, how do we combat that? What are the persuasive arguments that we need to be making to convince these lawmakers to embrace and vote for harm reduction instead of viewing it as voting against children? Well, you know, children don't live in a vacuum. You know, children become young adults. They become adults. And, you know, when, when, when you talk about drug policy and you talk about taking a reality-based approach to drug policy, um, you, you know, you really can't separate children from adults. Um, it, you know, it, it always becomes a fight between youth prevention uh, and, and somewhat adult cessa cessation. And, you know, I think Ethan Nadelman spoke well about that when, when he mentioned, you know, every every type of drug policy harm reduction victory we had, uh, the, the, the argument against it uh, over the years um, was, the you know, what about the children? Um, but it, it, it's about society and it, it's about civilians in a certain jurisdiction. Um, and, and so I think you just have to keep pointing out. Um, that we can't look at this uh, from a vacuum. Um, and when you ban something that's popular and you send it underground and you strengthen an already present illicit market by doing so, you, you should ask yourself, well, what does that mean for youth access when it comes to children? You know, when these products are underground in the illicit market, um, you know, anybody who's looking for supplemental income could get involved and, and, and sell this stuff. And, and, and are they checking ID? Um, and so, you know, I think when it comes to children, the best thing to do is what has worked over the last few decades, not only when it comes to tobacco and nicotine, uh, but with, with substances such as meth is that you, you, you engage in public education, aggressive, specifically targeted public education, and you look to provide um, you know, cessation uh, and and, and when it comes to criminal justice penalties, diversion type opportunities that that help kids. And so, you know, you really have to point out that when you send these products underground, that is not good for our children. Um, I, I think they're more likely to lie about their use if they know that these products are now basically contraband. Um, you know, you want to keep prob you know substances above ground as much as possible where they can be regulated and where they can be watched. And the, the prohibition um, space is not a, a space where something can be regulated and watched early. Right. And I, I think that's such an excellent point. You know, keeping products legal is harm reduction because when you send them to the black market, that is where harm will be maximized for 
all of those reasons you just stated. You're getting lots of uh, kudos in the audience from uh, Rob South, who is a Colorado business owner and followed all of this, because I, I think those are incredible points to make. And sometimes those are, are points that aren't taken very credibly when they're coming from industry stakeholders and small business owners. But when people like you and Ethan Nadelman, who are veterans of of these uh, drug policy and legalization fights make those points, I think they're hard to ignore. And so we really appreciate your voice in the conversation on, on those issues. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Tim, Lindsay, let's let's get into the tax thing because that's been brought up several times and, and, it, and it was a very important part of the case that was made and it was a very important part of considerations that were made by the governor's office as well as the appropriations committee in the Senate where the bill ultimately died. So uh, could either of you speak to the tax impact of um, vape products in Colorado and beyond vape products, you know, cause this bill, you know, we focus on vape, but this bill impacted, you know, all types of tobacco products, you know, oral pouches, uh, even uh, menthol cigarettes. Uh, so can, can either of you speak to the tax impact that this would have had in Colorado? Sure, I can, um, if Tim doesn't mind. Um, I mean, I think it was really great that the, I mean, I'm never going to argue in favor of cigarette tax increases or vape taxes, um, but it being tied to the governor's uh, preschool budget was um, really great uh, that, you know, he wasn't going to let that go um, and he was going to lose a lot of money on that, um, which is you know, you'd think that when they're looking at those programs and they are going to increase taxes, that campaign for tobacco free kids and the groups like them would be focused on where that funding is going to. Um, so when they do come up with a flavor ban, they don't really have to fight so hard for it. Um, and I think it was interesting that it didn't get brought up, but it brought it got brought up a little bit. Um, it was the, is the lack of funding, even amount, with the amount of taxes that, you know, Colorado does have. I'm looking at the numbers that I did. I mean, they collected $140 million in state excise taxes in um, 2020. And then they also had another $82.4 million tobacco settlement payments. But they only spent $21.4 million or 9.6% on programs to help smokers quit and or prevent, you know, youth vaping and stuff. And I think that's all that's the argument that I always use because it's a solution driven argument for them. You do have funding. We do know that tobacco education and those programs can work at, you know, reducing youth use. So I, I always go hard with that myself. Tim can probably talk more about the um, tax implications and the governor's uh, preschool budget. Yes. So essentially one of the governor's main commitments in Colorado for his election and one of his priorities was pre-K education funding. And this was premised on funding from, they, you know, these taxes. So when you make a product illegal, you can't tax the product anymore. So this would, like, irrespective of whether you think this was a good use of spending or not, um, this clearly would have gutted his court, his key pre-election promise and his main priority, which is, I think, ultimately one of the reasons why you know, some of the Democrats ended up voting against uh, this proposal. And the governor definitely was on the record saying he was not particularly keen on this. But I think we need to, um, as well as the loss in revenue, and remember, this, these products aren't going to go away. You're simply transferring tax the revenue that would have gone to the state to the criminal syndicates that will end up selling things black market. Um, and we have actually seen a big rise in illicit products. It's not just, you know, someone smuggling something in the, in the back of their car across the border. These will start becoming quite sophisticated operations. So you're taking money. Essentially what this bill would have done 
is take money from which was earmarked for three-year-old children and give it to criminal syndicates. It would have been a complete transfer of funds because, again, the products wouldn't have gone away. You're gutting a preschool program and giving the money to criminals. That's not exactly a particularly good policy outcome. And not only that, like, it wouldn't have only cost the government money. It, they would have had to have increased resources to try and clamp down on black market. They would have had to either increase police and enforcement actions or they would have had to divert attention away from actual crimes to trying to go after um, people who vape. So there's, there's this, from a fiscal perspective, this is just something that's completely nonsensical at the state level as well. Absolutely. And sort of last question on the, the tax piece, I'm going to send to Joe, because uh, Joe, you were behind the scenes having all of these uh, conversations with folks prior to them voting on this. And so what, what was the discussion that was happening uh, as lawmakers were considering how they were going to vote on this issue in light of, of the tax and what the tax was being used for? Yeah, quite frankly, I think there were some Democratic state legislators in Colorado that made the calculus or the decision that they could vote for House Bill 1064 and obtain some political cover so that in a re-election year, they wouldn't be criticized pending some of the discussions we've talked about earlier in terms of how the other side frames this issue as with us or against us. And knowing that the governor was working behind the scenes with key leadership in both the House and Senate to uh, kill the bill. And that's not often spoken about, but that was definitely a, a um, motivation for a lot of the Democratic legislators. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it took a while for the governor's office to decide to really uh, weigh in on this. But I, I think when they did, that definitely had an impact, especially when we got down to, you know, those final days, which were kind of this mad scramble on both sides to, uh, you know, take control of what was happening there. I think having that, um, you know, voice coming in from the governor's office with, with leadership was definitely helpful there. Um, so before we move on, I want to take the last, uh, you know, 15 minutes of the, the space to talk a little bit about what's going on with the FDA uh, and the upcoming midterms. Uh, but, but first, just kind of to wrap up uh, this Colorado discussion, because the idea of, of this Twitter space today is really to provide any sort of takeaways to any other advocates that may be staring down the barrel of a flavor ban in the future. Um, what do you think is the, the you know, one thing that can be learned from the Colorado fight that could be applied in other states or, or even federally? And, and I'll open that to everyone to offer kind of a final takeaway thought on Colorado. Lindsay, I'll pick on you first. I see Art unmuted. So Art, if you wanted to uh, provide a final thought on Colorado, please take the floor. You know, one thing that kind of surprised me coming from the marijuana regulatory space was was how lax in comparison the tobacco and nicotine regulatory space was. So, you know, here in Colorado, it, only in the last couple of years have we raised the age limit to 21 uh, only in the last couple of years have we increased enforcement efforts when it comes to vendors. 
uh, actually started to license vendors on, on the local level. Um, and so, and, and then of course the tax situation that, you know, we're going to see taxes raised clear up until 2027. So, you know, the state finally, uh, started to regulate the issue properly, uh, from my perspective and for proponents to then try to jump on top of, uh, the, 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 the new regulations and, and then ban some of the most popular and uh, revenue-producing products uh, j just w just was a bad idea. So I'm sure in other states uh, the tobacco regulations are are, are also fairly lax. Um, and 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 so you know I, I think if you start to clean up some of those areas, uh, I think it'll help you then fight the flavor ban, uh, especially if you have the sin tax situation that we have here in Colorado. Uh, and then another another thing I want to say real quickly is, you know, Tim brought up the enforcement uh, aspect. And, you know, if, if you have legislators of color in other states who are concerned with the relationship between communities of color, poor white communities and police, um, you know, you, you definitely have examples of, of issues where whether or not the, the, the flavor ban includes possession charges that doesn't matter um these issues will still run downhill on communities of color we've seen in the last two or three weeks uh young folks in texas and i think georgia uh handled roughly by police over vaping bans and so on and so forth so it's really all about do you want to create those touch points when it comes to enforcing this ban and and and, and keeping an eye out on this ban when it comes to products that are essentially contraband and what does that mean for communities of color so i think that resonated with uh legislators of color here in colorado i think it gave people the the proper amount and righteous amount of political cover uh to go against these bans uh so you know the unintended consequence argument of enforcement when it comes to communities of color and police um i, I think is something that should resonate across the country as well and I think just to follow up on that, and that one really important point you mentioned is it doesn't matter if they say they'll enforce it against consumers because this is some misinformation that advocates have come out and said in favour of these bans saying, oh, we're not going to enforce it against consumers, we're just going to enforce it against businesses. This is factually untrue because of the fact is that untaxed products are a felony in every state. So saying that this only would apply to businesses when you're creating felonies is first of all just simply ridiculous but secondly it creates opportunities for confrontation between vulnerable minorities and police if police spot someone with a product that they believe to be legal and they come up to them this could trigger a confrontation that could then escalate so and this is like what we saw why did eric garner why was eric garner killed by police in new york it was because of having an untaxed cigarette this is why on the and not on a vaping issue per se but this is why you have so many um black lives matter activists and in fact the families of george floyd and eric gardner as well as you know the reverend al sharpton the aclu all against flavor bans because despite what advocates say they will always ratchet up and they will hit the most vulnerable in society the most because they will put people into conflicts that could potentially escalate with deadly consequences.
Very good point, Tim. Uh, Lindsay, Joe, did either of you want to offer a final takeaway of, of any lessons other states or uh, federal uh, fights sure. you know, where these things could be applied? Sure. Just one quick comment. I think we have to acknowledge there's two important constituencies, youth who should never take up vaping and adults who want to stay alive and that both are equally important. I think one of the persuasive talking points that the other side communicates is the youth, the youth, the youth. And we have to say, hey, people like my Uncle Norm who died of cigarette smoking and millions of other adults them being alive, it's an equally important constituency. And then we start to discuss the half a dozen public policy points like age-restricted stores that can achieve both goals of keeping youth off vaping but keeping adults alive. And that balance resonated with a lot of uh, legislators here in Colorado. Tobacco-free kids, but uh, let's have combustible-free parents. Very well said, Char. Very well said. And, um, Amanda, I'll just end with, um, you know, it, it applies to any state because, you know, campaign for, for tobacco for kids isn't just in Colorado. If you're a vape shop owner, if you're a vapor um, and you're an adult, reach out to your lawmakers. I mean, be harassing them. Let them know who you are. As Tim had brought up, it was Representative Casimiro out in Rhode Island that was anti-e-cigarette. So she got harassed by people on Twitter and like she showed up to a vape shop and realized what they were doing. Um, you see it in hearings all the time that they're confused by these products, which makes you wonder why they're doing any regulation on them. Um, but, you know, yes, you might not get somewhere with some of them looking at you, Durbin and Raja, but some of them might be actually a little bit more open. And at some point, they're going to have to listen to you, especially if you're just, you know, going after them every single week, because I'm pretty sure that's what Jody was doing out in um, Colorado. Yeah, you know, Lindsay, that's a, a really good point, too. And one of the things that that we didn't spend so much time touching on uh, today but, you know, our, our state trade association, we actually hired someone uh, who was an employee of a local vape shop. We hired her part time to, to go around the state and speak to all of the retailers and, you know, educate them on what was happening and, and get them to the point where they were calling in and emailing in their lawmakers and, you know, constantly putting in those communications to weigh in on on how this would affect them, how this would affect their customers, their employees. And so I think that was also a, a really key point is just making our voices heard. And, and we did spend a significant effort doing that, you know, because we do know that, that Jody and Tobacco Free Kids spends a significant amount of effort on that as well. Uh, so with the last 10 minutes of, of the Twitter space here, I wanted to transition to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on at the FDA, particularly the last week's announcement of Brian King being appointed to head uh, the FDA Center for Tobacco Products. And of course, this comes at, at a crucial time when FDA is considering uh, many important things, all of the tobacco-derived nicotine PMTAs on uh, not only vape products, but, but a wide variety of, of harm reduction products. And as uh, FDA is also contemplating the uh, menthol uh, cigarette ban. And so, you know, we see Brian King coming in from the CDC. Uh, he's very on record over the years uh, talking about his stance on, on vape and other products. And so uh, I wanted to ask Tim, Lindsay, um, anybody else who's been following this topic over the last week, 
what's your prognosis uh, about this uh, Brian King uh, reign at the Center for Tobacco Products? What kind of decisions do you think we'll see coming out of Center for Tobacco Products under his leadership? Flavors are going to be banned. Uh, I mean, he's gone on record. I'm looking it up right now. Um, you know, quote unquote, advertising is bringing the horse to water. The flavors are getting them to drink and the nicotine is keeping them back for more. He said that back in 2017 and in 2019. Um, I think he's going to heavily weigh youth use of these pro of these products against whatever harm potential that the FDA finds with them. Um, and it's really unfortunate. Uh, I would tend well, I to think agree. this is where we I think this is where we really have to, in our PMTAs, we absolutely have to try to give them real numbers on what our risk is, on what the benefit to adults are, what the risk to youth are. Um, because I think if we're going to take these guys to court and we're going to show this to a judge, we need actual numbers to back that up. And and we have a wonderful study coming out or, or going to start up that uh, – they can actually do that for us. Yeah, I would, I would agree, Char. I, I know that, um, you know, that it is important, but Tim, I wonder, what do you think about that? Do you think it's a matter of, of if we provide FDA enough data, we'll get a reasonable decision or where do you, where do you think this is at? I'm unfortunately skeptical that an ideologue such as Brian King will be persuaded by anything rational or reasonable. I think he has demonstrated that his commitment is one that is on um, ideology and not one science. And given the fact that he has so much availability on the science, I'm not sure how we will be able to convince him otherwise. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope that, you know, the optimism of some other people that they'll see reason or that they might be shifted is warranted. However, I'm a little bit pessimistic. And I think that until we see legislative and administrative change, um, there's not much chance of the FDA changing. I think in the short term, potentially using Congress to apply pressure will be helpful potentially, but I'm, to be honest, I'm feeling a little bit skeptical. Yeah, I think I agree. I think Char made an important point that, you know, providing complete applications and providing complete data is going to be important in the legal challenges, but I don't know that at this point, exactly. uh, FDA, FDA is really guiding their decisions based on, on the science, but, you know, hopefully uh, some of these 48 court cases that are out there and, you know, the ones to come, um, that data will be helpful and useful. Uh, so um, last question here. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a sticky topic. I'm going to ask a very political question. Um, but, you know, I think I think we can have these tough conversations. Obviously, we have the congressional midterms coming up this year. And, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily speculate or offer my personal opinions on, you know, what parties or what candidates are going to prevail. Um, but what I think we can all agree on is that we need more pro-harm reduction members in Congress. And and so I think my question for everybody is, what, what do we need to see first? Do we have to see a switch in um, leadership as far as, you know, who makes up the majority in Congress, who is in charge of the FDA before we see some kind of policy change? Or do we think those policy changes are possible regardless of, of who is in charge?
Well, I don't think they're possible if we keep the same guys in, in play that have been in play because they have their attitudes, they have their decisions, and, and that's kind of what they're going to stick to. Um, I think if we can upset a few apple carts and get some new people in, then when you get to that uh, that potential lawmaker before they become a member, then I think you have a really you stand a better, much better chance of changing their opinion on harm reduction. So once they're in there and they've been there for a while, I think they're pretty set in stone. Yeah, I think it's going to take um, a unusual Democrat to go against the politics and the influence and money of Michael Bloomberg to really latch on to harm reduction. Uh, but I think that's going to be the fight within the democratic party. And, and, you know, I, I think we're going to have to look to get, you know, more vocal organizations who are involved in drug policy and harm reduction, uh, to, to, to jump into this space and, and really hammer home the reality that, you know, vaping is reducing the harm. Of, of tobacco use and 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 so we that needs to be our focus not only for young people but for adults and for our elderly as well um so you know i think it's going to be a, a pretty tough fight within the democratic party uh I, you know the republican party hasn't really been um friends to harm reduction but uh you know they are uh in this space you know kind of anti-regulatory and, and so that kind of benefits the the fight but you know, it's going to be interesting to see who in the Democratic Party can buck the trend and the influence uh, and politics surrounding Bloomberg and, and these public health organizations and, and really start to uh, bring harm reduction into the argument. Yeah, I would agree. You know, it's uh, it's baffling to me that we see this tend to fall out. I mean, not entirely. There are lots of exceptions to this, but as a general rule, um it's tended to be a somewhat partisan issue because we've got one party that um, is all about consumer freedom and, and low taxes and, and a friendly business environment. Um, but ultimately, I think we're going to have to win this battle on a harm reduction public health argument of getting everyone to see the important role that these products can play in reducing the disease and death of combustible tobacco. And so it's it's really unfortunate that there is so much uh, Bloomberg financial influence on, on one side of the issue because, you know, eventually we've got to break out uh, of this sort of pattern, this political rut we've been in uh, on some of these arguments and, and make harm reduction the really the forefront of the conversation. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that will start to happen more and more. I think we're, we're seeing more of that. Uh, we're seeing more dissenting voices in the in the public health community that are having an open mind about this. And I, I hope that starts to transfer over into some of our political leaders having more of an open mind. Uh, so we've got about three minutes left. I just wanted to give anyone an opportunity to address anything that we had not uh, previously addressed before we sign off here. I just want to quickly talk about menthol cigarettes and, and the upcoming FDA ban. You know, the FDA is assuming that menthol smokers will quit at a 15% clip uh, just because, you know, menthol is banned or they will simply look and switch to regular tobacco. And, and you know, that is just going to be a serious test 
for our customs agents on, on our northern and southern borders when it comes to menthol cigarettes. Um, I, I think the illicit market is, is really going to rear its ugly head when it comes to uh, menthol cigarettes. We might get a bunch of, you know, cheap products floating around, Chinese and Russian cheap cigarettes floating around that have way more chemicals in them than a lot of the menthol that are on the market now. Um, and, and the unintended consequences when it comes to enforcement and what me and Tim talked about uh, when it comes to police jurisdictions who are, are notoriously bad or just certain individual police who are notoriously bad, they're really going to use this. And so uh, the, the menthol ban is really going to test a lot of our infrastructure here in this country. Well said. Uh, anybody have any follow-up thoughts? Doesn't watch near contact your lawmakers. That's right, Lindsay, always important. Uh, well, Shar, thank you for co-hosting today. Tim, Lindsay, Joe, Art, really appreciate all of you taking the time to come on today and, and share your thoughts and wisdom on all of this. Um, and, you know, I hope that the people listening in today found some of this uh, useful and we will all continue to go and, and fight the good fight. So thank you for, to everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.